morning again, church. If you have your Bibles, please open up with me to Exodus. We will be continuing our series, our new series in Exodus, there and back again in chapter 3 today. Last week we talked about the idea of home, what it meant to be homeless, the fact that since we've been out of Eden, we have been homeless. We're on this journey. Now, of course, we know that in a sense we have a home. In fact, we have a God who makes his home in us. The Holy Spirit resides in our hearts and has taken up residence, has tabernacled among us. Jesus put on flesh, and now we are indwelt by the Spirit, but we still long for glory. We still long for heaven. We are on that journey to our heavenly home. This week, we get to really start getting into some of the movement of Exodus. We'll be in chapter 3, and, and we see at the beginning here, things start picking up pace. If you have your Bibles, please open up again to Exodus chapter 3. The title of today's sermon is simply, I Am. I Am. First thing I want you to see today is the holy mountain of God. The holy mountain of of God. This covers the majority of our passage today, from verse 1 in chapter 3 all the way through verse 17 of chapter 4. And the big question that I want you to see, the big kind of turning point that you're going to see, particularly in this chapter, is who is the story about now? Who's the story about now? Who do we learn more about through this passage? Moses, or the Israelites, or God? You see, the Lord really starts to take center stage here in chapter 3. And really, since where we concluded last week in chapter 2, verse 23, remind you where we ended last week in verse 23 of chapter 2, during those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I hope that that passage has been a treasure to you this week. I find myself using it often. Um, I, I love that aspect of the preached word of God, is that this is something for all of us to grab onto and to hold together. So I pray that you have seen... God seeing you this week, that you see that he knows you, that when you encounter the scriptures, you are known by God. With that, I want to pray today, and then we'll get underway. Father God, we love you. We thank you so much for what you're doing. It's exciting to be in this place. It's exciting for the, the future of what is in store for refuge. But Father, we don't have to wait. The Israelites didn't even have to wait. They were faithful where they were. We can be faithful where we are. And we get to see so much of you in this passage today. And I pray that you would soften our hearts as opposed to what we'll see you did to Pharaoh, that you would soften our hearts, that we might fall in love with you. That we might see the holy majesty of this God that is presented in chapter 3, the same one that now is pleased to live in us. Father, by the work of your Son, I pray that we would see him, the Word, here today. Father, we love you and we pray this in his name. Amen. So, God saw the people 
and God knew. What is the holy mountain of God? Forty years passes between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Forty years. How do we know that? Uh, Well, we have more than just Exodus. Acts chapter 7, verse 30, as Stephen is recounting the history of what the Pharisees should know and, and own, says that 40 years passes before God calls Moses. And I think that that helps because in our passage in chapter 3, some translations say he was still shepherding. As in this continuation, he has been doing this thing. He has been watching the flocks for 40 years. And I think it's helpful for us because as we've looked at this, we talked last, last week, 400 years God's people have been in slavery. Now 40 more years after he heard, after he saw, after he knew. <laughs> What's going on? This passage helps us see and just makes clear that God is not in our kind of hurry. He's just not. He's not delaying, and he's certainly not negligent. We, we would never say that God is negligent. So what is happening? He wants a shepherd for his people. He wants a shepherd for his people. And so his chosen man had to learn how to look after someone else's sheep. Moses had to learn to look after someone else's sheep. And so we can see that over 40 years, Moses had this period of shaping and discipline, right? This training by the hand of God, secretly shaping his identity, secretly shaping his destiny. And I love that. I love that picture. Now, this isn't the, well, this may be one of the earlier times that we see this in, in the scriptures, but it's not the only time. Oftentimes, I think when we think of Paul, we think of him on Damascus, on the Damascus road, and, and, and converted by the vision of the Lord, and then off to the races, right? That's not what happens. We know that Paul spent 14 years, 14, 14 years before embarking on his missionary journeys after the Damascus Road encounter. That is, a, that is a huge thing. Three years he spent with the Lord, it says, and then another 11 years after that in Antioch, teaching, just being faithful, teaching the people of God. And so the, the thing that I want you to see is that for most of us, there is a training period. Um, for me and, and Pastor Matt and, and a few others I know, we kind of got into ministry quickly. I wouldn't necessarily call our early ministry fruitful. Uh, we learned faithfulness. We learned this disciplining of the Lord, this shaping of the Lord. And, and now we, we, we see great fruit from that time of, of discipline and shaping in our lives. But for many people, and for even us still, the case is what we experience and have gone through and grow through and even suffer. My question to you is, how is God using your time of preparation? If you're a younger believer, you're probably in this time right now. And even the things that you experienced before your conversion, before your regeneration, these things still play into this idea of, of preparation, for some of you older saints, what has God taken you through so that you might see 20 years later an opportunity to use that thing that happened, that discipline of the Lord now for the good of someone else in the body? And God is faithful. He uses our time of preparation, our times of suffering. He uses the time of just regular, faithful living, normal life. The question I have for you today 
church is what might he be preparing you for? What is God doing? Recognize that in these quiet times, the secret hand of God is all over your life. It was for Moses. We knew that this time of preparation had to happen for Moses. Later in the Psalms in chapter 77, I want to to read to you this this struggle of, of, of crisis, of suffering that we see from the psalmist. And, and listen very closely for what he appeals to, because you'll see it coming through Exodus. And listen at the end of what he knew had to happen. In, in Psalm 77, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. I sought the Lord in my day of trouble. My hands were continually lifted up all night long. But I refused to be comforted. I think of God and I groan. I meditate and my spirit becomes weak. You have kept me from closing my eyes. I'm troubled and I cannot speak. I consider days of old, years long past. And at night I remember my music and I meditate in my heart and my spirit ponders. Will the Lord reject forever and never again show favor? Has his faithful love ceased forever? Is his promise at an end for all generations? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? And so I say, I am grieved that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I will remember the Lord's works. Yes, I will remember your ancient wonders. I reflect on all you have done and meditate on your actions. God, your way is holy. What God is great like God? You are the God who works wonders. You revealed your strength among the peoples. With power, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The water saw you, God. The water saw you, it trembled. Even the depths shook. The clouds poured down water. The storm clouds thundered. Your arrows flashed back and forth. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Lightning lit up the world and the earth shook and quaked. Your way went through the sea and your path through the vast water, but your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So many of the pictures that we see here in Exodus, indeed, it is really a reflection on it. The challenge, the struggle, the where is God? We are his people. He said he was coming with us. Where has he been? But at the end, you led us. You led us like a flock. You are our shepherd by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And so God wants this shepherd. God delights to use shepherds throughout the scriptures. The lowly to overturn kings. And so the time has come for God to commission his man here on Horeb, the holy mountain of God. On your text it says the mountain of God. God's presence makes this mountain holy. We have the burning bush. That's what... That's what entices Moses to come near. He comes, God calls, and Moses responds. But then God responds, do not come near for this is holy ground. Where God is, is holy. 
It can be no other. He is that holy. What does holy mean? It means to be set apart. It means to be utterly different. It means to be wholly other. God is completely unlike anything else. He is absolutely holy. And we see later, the return to this mountain, he even says that in our passage here. But when they come back here to the mountain of God, Sinai, in Exodus 19, we see a warning that they are to set up a perimeter around the mountain. And if any man or animal touches the mountain, they are to be stoned or shot with arrows. The mountain is so holy, it kills What does he say then in verse 6? He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is the first time in Scripture that we see this deliverance of this, this, this passage that we will hear so many times throughout, particularly the Old Testament. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This comes to be the way that God expresses himself and his covenant-keepingness. The promise was to Abraham and then to his sons. And we see him trace it through. And, And what's delightful is particularly after Exodus, we get this. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, who delivered you from Egypt. That's how he refers to himself after Exodus. Moses' response, I think, is just absolutely appropriate and so helpful. He hid his face. He recognizes who this angel of the Lord is. It is God Almighty, the Holy One. What's interesting is later, the next time he encounters him on this mountain, he does want to see him. He does ask to see God, right? And even still, he can't. Now, on this holy mountain of God, God has his man. He's getting ready to commission him. What language does God use to show us what his purposes are? Over the next few verses, I want you to just write or look for these. Just, Just... Just identify this. Look how God delivers this commission to Moses. He says these words, I have seen, I have heard, I know. I have come down to deliver. The cry has come to me. I have seen. And so behold, I will send you. (laughs) I will send you. God sees, he hears, he knows, he's come down to deliver the cry, he's he's heard again. I've seen, and now what? I will send you to deliver my people. That is the commission. And it it sets us up for what we're going to see. Because I am these things, you do this. He, He sets us up for it right here. Of course, like Moses, we often don't hear and then believe. So what I want you to see now is the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel. From chapter 3, verse 11, all the way through verse 17 of chapter 4. Now, for the sake of Refuge Church, and the way that we 
uh, look at the character of God, often through the four G's. I've taken this passage and I've paired them up with a G. It's just my processing through it. This is, this is not, it doesn't have to be this way, but I want to, I want you to help. I want to help you see how we use the text, how we understand God in the scriptures. And in really any case, any of the four G's could be swapped out here. But I, I want to deliver it to your heart in a way that lets you identify as Moses this one time. It lets you stand there in front of a holy God and see him as he reveals himself. First thing I want you to see is God is good. The Holy One of Israel is good. After the commission, we see the first response from Moses. I appreciate that Moses gives this to us this way. Now, I think it was by the Spirit writing through him that gives it to us this way. Uh, Because Moses has written the Pentateuch, and he knows the end. But he writes it for us in such a way that he doesn't know. (laughs) And we get to enter into it with him. And so his first response back to God is, who am I that I should go? Who am I, Lord? Who am I that I should go? If I'm a comfort idol, I'm thinking, I don't like conflict. This sounds pretty stressful. I don't think that I'm good enough. I don't think that I'm good enough. Well, largely, I think that this is an appropriate response, and, and the Lord doesn't rebuke him for it. But he doesn't answer his question either, does he? Who am I that I should go? What's his response? I will be with you. <laughs> when you come out of Egypt, you will serve me on this mountain. His response to his question is, you get me. You get God. I am yours and you will be mine. That is exactly what a comfort idol needs to hear. That's what one who sees God as good and so I don't have to look elsewhere needs to hear. I get God. I don't have to look elsewhere. I am with you and I am all that you need. So often we don't feel good enough because we're not. We are not good enough, but we have one who is perfectly good. And not only that, but we know from Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Brother, sister, do you love him? Are you a new creation in him? Are you working towards his plans and purposes? Then everything that we experience is for your good. God is good. We don't have to look elsewhere. He is with us and he is all that we need. Next thing I want you to see is that the Holy One of Israel is glorious. The Holy One of Israel is glorious. The next thing that we hear from Moses is, what is your name? That I might tell the people who sent me. It's an important question as well. It's not necessarily out of line for him him to ask. I, I think, unfortunately, the last question he's going to, the last response Moses has betrays his motive all the way through. But this is a good question to ask. What's your name that I may tell the people who sent me? I remember that when we're dealing with Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they have 
a, a, a pantheon of gods, right? There, are, there is not just one. There's many. And so who is it that commands the power to release his people? And keep in mind, too, that Pharaoh is king, right? Moses is thinking he thinks he is God. He believes he is God, or at least one of them. Have you seen his gold? I mean, he'll laugh at me and my no-name God. He is supreme in all the lands. He believes he is God. I'm going to prove a little. Fear rejection. What is God's response? I stand above all. There is no other. I am the most glorious. His response in verse 14 and 15. I am who I am. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The same. I'm unchanging. The same one that I entered into covenant with, with Abraham. I am the same for Isaac. I am the same for Jacob. I am the same for you. I am who I am. There is no other. You don't need to fear him. Fear me. Worship me. I am the most glorious one. There is no other. Next thing I want you to see is the Holy One of Israel is great. The Holy One of Israel is great. Moses is concerned at the top of chapter 4 is this. How would the people believe that you've sent me? How would they believe that you've sent me? I'm a control idol. I'm thinking, I can't control him. It's so uncertain. These standards that you have and expectations that you have, I can't make what you want to happen, happen. I just can't. What does God say? Look at my power. None command me. I am the great one. I am in absolute control. So what does he do? Verse 2. Yahweh turns Moses' rod into a serpent and then back into a rod. Now, I don't know if you've seen Charlton Heston movie on which, unfortunately, most of my Exodus theology is based. Um, But let's stop and just take a moment. This is probably going to hurt my time, and I don't know if this makes me a good preacher or not. But we can't just blow past these things, okay? Um, If you've wondered if God the Father is indeed a father, I would present to you this picture. What's that in your hand? It's a snake. <laughs> what are you doing, right? I mean, for me, look, look next to you. What, what do you have? For me, it's like my coffee mug, right? You guys make fun of me for always having it. This is my teddy bear now that I'm an adult. Uh, it's my comfort thing, right? And so I'm talking to God at the, the holy mountain, and I question him, and what does he say? What's that in your hand? The mug? Throw it on the ground. <laughs> snake, right? Now, now, pick it up. By the tail, the, the definite, other than the teeth, the definite place you don't want to pick up a snake. Everyone knows that, even people who hate snakes. What is he doing? If I'm a control idol and I'm worried about standards, um, God's ways are not ours. They aren't. He is the great one. He is in absolute control. He has the power to turn a stick 
into a snake and back again. To, to have him put his hand in his cloak, pull it out full of disease and leprosy, put it back perfectly healed. The power to take the life-giving water of the Nile and turn it into blood. He's the great one. You don't have to be in control. You can't master this. You can't master me. Pharaoh is not in control. And he can't master me either. He cannot wrest control from my hand. He can't do it. I'm the great one. Next one I want you to see. The Holy One of Israel is gracious. The Holy One of Israel is gracious. (sighs) Moses, verse 10, I'm not eloquent, I'm slow of speech. I'm a power idol. He won't listen to me. I, I can't influence him. He's the king. I'm a shepherd. He doesn't even know me. This is a new king. He hates our people. How am I supposed to convince him? It's going to be humiliating. Show up in the court of Pharaoh and demand that his people be, these people be released? It's absolutely humiliating. What does God say? It is I who influence man. It is I who influence man. I shaped you for my purposes. What does he say, verse 11? I, Yahweh, am the one who made your mouth. In a sense, you have this very sharp rebuke of, of Moses complaining about something that God gave him. Now, It's not an unreasonable complaint. There are many of us who complain to God, who are angry to God, as we talked about last week, for what he's done. God is the one who makes his mouth. To finish the picture of the power rattle here, I want you to see this. You don't have to prove yourself. I made your mouth. You don't have to prove yourself. There's nothing to earn here. This is my work. I have come down to deliver my people. There's nothing to prove. This is my work. These are my people. I think that this one in particular is super helpful. When we think about the way that we interact with God, there are things about all of us that we don't like. From our looks to our abilities to our voices to whatever it may be, there are things that we don't like. I don't like the fact that I have genetic hearing loss. I don't like that. I don't like the fact that I miss out on 60% of what the rest of you enjoy. My wife laments often that I I miss out on things that the kids say uh, because I can't hear it. I don't like that in counseling it's very difficult to hear the quiet but finally vulnerable delivered hurt from people and ask them to speak up or to act like I can hear and deceive them in some of their most... I hate that situation. I don't like any of that. I know that my complaints are far less than some that many of you can make. So I think that there are, there are two things that, that in the Scriptures that really help kind of unlock some of what God is after here on this mountain and what He's after in our lives, in my life. It says in John 9, 
Verse 1, he says this, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? Because he was born blind. And Jesus answers this, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And Jesus is saying that it is a result of sin, the fall, that this man is like that. That Moses has these issues with his voice or mouth or whatever it may be. That I have issues with my hearing. That you have whatever illness or manifestation it may be. It's because of that. But why do we have them? It's not because of anyone in particular sin. It's not passed down through the generations, even with genetic issues. What is the purpose that even in this fallenness, the glory of God, the works of God might be displayed in him because of this thing in a way that only he gets because he was born blind. Peter, you (laughs) weren't blind. You don't get to display the glory of God in this way. He does. You guys don't have this, except Anthony, my brother. (laughs) You guys don't get to display this type of glory to God, this type of weakness that's reserved for the two of us. You and your current suffering, whatever it may be, it's not because of your son. It's not because of your parents' sin. If you were born this way, if that's what your lot is, it is for great purpose. The glory of God. Jesus is going to use that. This is not something new that happened to Moses. It's been him for 80 years. And now God is using it to deliver his people. And so we see in Psalm 139, verse 13 and 14, you all know this one. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God did not mess you up. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Does your soul know it very well? You recognize that the things that happen in your life are grace. It's a grace. For me, I have to lean on others more. I can't be self-sufficient. I have to lean on God. I have to know his word. I have to know people better because of my hearing. It's a grace. God is gracious. Last thing I want you to see is final reproof. The Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel, what? Is the one to be feared. Is the one to be feared. Moses' final problem is just straight up fear of man. It's straight up fear of man. It's what we all deal with. Please send someone else. Verse 13 of chapter 4. This is what he wanted to say the whole time. If you look at the Hebrew, you see the pattern of these phrases. This is what he meant the first time. This has been the mode of the whole time. Please send someone else. Start to see the anger of God finally start to stir up here. He says, fine, Aaron will go with you. You will speak my words to him and he will speak to the people for you. You're not getting out of the work, Moses. You're still my man. 
for this task. But God is gracious to him. Indeed, throughout this whole passage, he's been gracious, far more gracious than I am with my kids. They're three. Moses knows better. And God is still gracious. You believe that he's still gracious with you? That he's the one to be feared? That he's the one in control? That he is good and gracious? That he is great and glorious? And so in reply to Moses' qualms, the Lord in effect says to him, across all five, is this, what about me? Are you taking me into account? Where are your eyes fixed at, Moses? Now listen, the Lord did not take away or even promise to take away Moses' nervousness or to impart boldness to him as he does in other passages to other people. He did, however, call him to a position of what? Trust. Of trust. The solutions to Moses' problems involved him doing these things, resting in the Lord's presence. Chapter 3, verse 12. Bearing simple testimony to the Lord's revelation of truth about himself. Simple testimony. Just be faithful. Verse 14 of chapter 3. Doing what God commanded on the assumption that God himself would produce the results. Chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. Receiving the Lord's help to overcome inadequacies. Expecting abilities to match needs. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4. And finally, Trusting the Lord's promise that help was on its way. Verse 14 of chapter 4. Now, we know the story we can read ahead. God later proves himself to be trustworthy in, this, in, in these events. But in the prospect of it here, in the, in the call, the commission of it here, Moses was called to that kind of obedience of faith without seeing any actual change in himself or his situation shy of a snake and a leprous hand, of course. But the question is, is, can you do that? When you're commissioned by God to trust Him, to rest in Him without seeing any change in yourself or your circumstances, can you do that? We can put it another way. When Moses was faced with this vocation to bring his people, the Israelites, out of Egypt, his reaction was basically, I can't, therefore I won't. But the Lord is seeking to bring him to this point where he could say instead, I can't. But he can, therefore I will. That is the obedience of faith. That's what we're after, doing the will of God because he will always do what he has willed. Trusting the promises of God because he will always keep his word. And acting on the assumption of divine provision because he will never fail to provide. He is, I am, the self-existent one, the holy God of Israel. Last thing I want you to see is the faithful covenant keeper. The faithful covenant keeper in chapter 4, 18 through 31 In verses 18 through 20, we see Moses leave the mountain. And Moses goes to Jethro, uh, the, his father-in-law, and asks to go back to Egypt. What's his reason? What is his reason supposed to be? Because the way he delivers it to Jethro is to see if my brothers are still alive. Really, Moses? 
God shows up, says, go deliver my people. Was he expecting to go back and them all be dead? Well, he's lying. He, he's not trusting God. He's not sure yet. I think it is important to see this, though. Even with very clear doubt, either in, in, in Jethro believing him or in whatever it may be, he still was faithful. He still went, right? He still went back to Egypt. And don't, catch, don't, don't miss this little, this little piece at the end, verse, uh, verse 20. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Why does that matter? Well, he said earlier that the staff will be an example of my presence with you. And as, as covenant signs of the rainbow and circumcision, they were bearers of the promises of God. They, they excited and invited God's covenant people to respond in faith and obedience, right? And so the staff assures Moses of the Lord's presence and power and prompted him to action, believing that the Lord would prove to be as good as his word. It was his comfort. <laughs> For us, church, the contemporary covenant signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper exercise the same function. When we share weekly, usually, in the Lord's Supper, it is that covenant picture that covenant reality, that, that comfort, that reminder of the promise. And we see it in baptism and a, a, the example of a new birth, a new transformed heart. It should serve that same function for us. And so we take the staff of God in our hand as we practice those. In verse 21 through 23, we see these instructions to Pharaoh. Here's the instructions. I want you to catch a few components of this. I will harden his heart. I will harden his heart. That's a hard reality for many Bible readers. For the Christian, it's important for us to recognize that God is the actor, the, the only one, the actor on the hearts of men. Every time you hear the word of God preached, read, whatever, it will have one of two effects on your heart right now. Is either going to soften your heart towards the Lord or it will harden your heart towards the Lord. In this case, when God's words through Moses go to Pharaoh, God says, I will harden his heart. God is going to judge Pharaoh. He's going to judge Egypt. And he warns him by saying, Israel is my firstborn son. Let him go. And we see this entrance of the firstborn idea that's going to string throughout Exodus and an incredibly important aspect. In fact, Pharaoh believes himself to be the firstborn among the gods, among all people on earth, especially his own people and those around him. Now you have Moses showing up saying, I am, says Israel is my firstborn son. The whole lot of them are my firstborn son. Let him go. And if not... I will kill your firstborn son. The warning is here. Verse 24 through 26, we see covenant sincerity. Covenant sincerity. I want you to see in this passage that when we think about covenant relationship, God means what he says. When it says that he remembered his covenant earlier, 
And then we encounter this particular passage, which is by all accounts weird in most cases. We need to understand what's actually happening here. And I think what helps unlock it for us is Genesis 17. I, I think a lot of people would skip this passage. I think this is really important for us. Genesis 17, 13 through 14, two chapters after the covenant is instituted with Abraham, you see this. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. We talked about the Holy One before. Here we need to see that this is why disobedience is such a serious matter. Again, Siri, this happens to me every time. It is a important matter. You see, when we encounter the covenant of God, particularly the, the rules and regulations that come with it, we must keep it. We know that we can't. That's why we need Jesus, our perfect covenant keeper. But here in this passage, we see God apparently coming to kill Moses. Why? His son was not yet circumcised. He was out of the covenant. How can you have this man who's supposed to lead a nation of covenant people not keeping the covenant? It's, it's as if Moses was presuming upon the promises of God, or worse, they didn't matter to him. At least it didn't matter enough to him for him to obey them and to keep them. Disobedience is a serious issue. It's acting as if we had no need of God, his grace or his pledges. I don't need your promises, God. I don't need this covenant. Really, in other words, it's nothing short of enacted atheism. To hear God's words and not obey says what? It says everything. And only by returning to the way of obedience could Moses continue to walk in the way of service. This divine assault from God for his life was really an exceedingly kind work of grace. Because what happens? Moses is apparently out of commission in some fashion, whether it's by seizure or whatever. It appears to be fatal because what happens? Another woman steps up and does what God requires, even with a man who is for at least 40 years not kept the covenant of God. Zipporah circumcises her son with flint, as is commanded in Genesis, takes that foreskin and puts it at the feet of Moses, and the blood touches Moses. I know this is gross, but you have to catch the significance of this. Moses did not enter into covenant by blood. Zipporah, through faith, takes that blood and covers Moses with the blood. And in this covering act, God relents. Moses comes back to himself and we see Zipporah's claim over Moses. My bridegroom by blood. My bridegroom by blood. She has him back from death, as it were. And now has a new start, essentially, to her marriage with him. And so we see that this 
leader of God's people has to be set apart as well. Now, one detail I don't want to overlook that I think is, is helpful, or I wouldn't bring it up in this context. Gershom, the, the, the firstborn son, as we're tying this to, to Pharaoh, to Moses, is probably about 40 years old. And Zipporah still enacts this act of faith. That's awkward. The truthful reality and the thing that I want you to hold on to is that God is gracious. You can come back. You can come back. God is still bringing people into covenant. It's not too late. One day it will be. One day it will be too late to act in faith and to come into covenant with God. But it's not here yet. It wasn't for Gashom. He came back. He's now in the covenant. Moses is now right inside the covenant. God is gracious. Come back into the covenant. The last thing I want you to see then is this. In verses 27 to 31, faithfulness. The faithful covenant keeper, God is faithful. Verse 28 through 31, I want to read it so you can see. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak. Praise God. Moses was faithful. And all the signs that he had commanded him to do, he acted. Verse 29, then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. This is what he's afraid of. All the elders of Israel, he's in front of them now. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. The people believed. Isn't that what he was afraid of? They wouldn't believe him? They'd just write him off? He'd be humiliated? He'd be cast out again? The people believed. And look what they did. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. They bowed their heads and worshipped. They are God's people. They may not be in his place yet. They are his people. They are going to get his rule, his law, very shortly. And they will be blessed as a result of that. They will be the people that know God. So my question for you today is, do you know this faithful covenant keeper? Are you walking in obedience with this covenant keeper? Do you know the Holy One of Israel? Do you know the King of Kings? Because the question is, at the mountain of God, how will you respond? When you stand, indeed today, before I am, will you trust Him? Will you trust Him? Do you believe that He is good, gracious, great, and glorious? Because if you do, you will treasure Him above all things. There's nothing else. You've got God. Moses shows up on the mountain and he gets God. By many accounts, this is his actual conversion. He's got God. 
And we know, too, that by the death of his own firstborn son, we now can ascend the holy hill. We don't have to say, who am I? We look at the one. And it's because of him we can come. But he commands us to go now. And so will you trust and will you go? I pray with you guys. Father God, we thank you for the holy mountain of God, that place where you came down to meet your people. Where you came down not just to meet us, but to reveal yourself, to show us what you're like. And Father, as we'll see by the end of this book, that you came to live amongst us. It's time for me to move in. I will tabernacle among my people. And Father, we know that you have taken up residence in our hearts. We know that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, help us trust you. There's so many times in my life where I've been commissioned by you to go and be an ambassador of reconciliation. To go and to confront someone in the Word. And I stand with trepidation. I I stand anxious. I stand wondering and worrying how it will all go down. Yet, Father, every time when I am faithful, you show up. I get there and your words come. You give them to me just like you gave them to Moses. Father, you deliver people from sin and death in my presence. And I still have the audacity to wonder the next time. Father God, forgive us for doubting you. You have been absolutely amazing. There are no words but to bow our heads in worship. Father, help us see you as holy as I am. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.